I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Home sweet home. Tonight, tonight, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Home sweet Verdict, I think, was fair. Um, it was proven twice now that Lindsay was an innocent victim and she was killed by a career criminal. Uh, the way that Lindsay died was undeserving of any any human being. At least today's sentence reflects the brutality of Lindsay's attack and her murder. This isn't an end for us. This is an end to an arduous process where we had to sit and endure lies about our daughter as a defense. There's something wrong with that system. There's, there's, it, it's broken. It needs to be fixed. We need to have, victims need a voice and their voices need to be heard. Happy Monday, my friends. Hope you are staying healthy and happy. Welcome to my third episode of Delaware Crime Podcast. A beautiful angel meets the devil. The brutal murder of Lindsay Bonnestel. Warning. This podcast contains information and graphic material that is not suitable for children under 18 years of age. Parental guidance is advised. So let's begin. On May 1st, 2005, Lindsay Marie Bonnestel, 20 years old, and a sophomore at University of Delaware, was killed by James P. Cook in her off-campus town court apartment. Her loving roommate was back at home with her family for the weekend. James P. Cook is currently on death row. To understand this story, we must talk about the beautiful victim, Lindsay Bonnestel. Lindsay was living her best college life at University of Delaware in Newark. <clears throat> in Lindsay's town court off-campus apartment with her good friend and roommate, Christine, pictures nearly covered the entire wall of the bedroom. A collage of family and friends from home and school documented 20 years' worth of memories. The Vincent Van Gogh print of Cafe Terrace at night and a Bob Marley poster hung next to the lighthearted doodles drawn during the many hours spent in class. In the main room, bright-colored tapestries adorn the ceilings and the walls. Posters of Sublime the Dave Matthew Band and Pink Floyd decorated the walls, among numerous original works of art done by friends. The independence that came with living off campus in her Tancourt apartment gave sophomore Lindsay Bonnestill the opportunity to create her own lifestyle. Lindsay's father, Mark, said she wanted to chart her own course. She liked the idea of having her own place and the idea of working and paying her utility bills. Lindsay 
20, of Way Plains, New York, was found strangled in her bathtub May 1st during an investigation of an early morning fire that was set in her apartment. The once artsy apartment had been reduced to ash marks and water damage. The smell of, of it pervaded the building. To those who knew her, Lindsay will always be remembered for her sense of humor and energetic energetic personality, said her older sister, Kristen. Lindsay had the ability to add humor to any situation. She would be the one making it better for all of us right now. Through her tears, she said. She would be the one who would make us laugh and make us happy again. She was a joy. Sophomore John, Lindsay's former boyfriend from freshman year, said he and his friends were from freshman year, said he and his friends agreed Lindsay would want them to be happy regardless of the tragic situation. If she were here, she'd be making jokes and laughing about it and saying, guys, don't worry about it. She just had an attitude where she was always happy. Laughing, her older sister recalled, Lindsay's habit of making funny faces and picture and funny faces and pictures. She always felt if she wouldn't that she wouldn't be looking her hundred percent best in the picture. She she might even be licking someone's face in the picture. <laughs> All who knew her said humor was part of Lindsay's life. Comedy Central was constantly on the TV in their apartment. It was common knowledge that Lindsay's favorite movies were Old School, Office Space, Super Troopers, and 13 Going on 30. Because she would recite lines to the T to the amusement of friends. Christine, Lindsay's roommate, said her and Lindsay met while they were living in Dickinson B. Residence Hall their freshman year. They were inseparable. We were just obsessed with each other from the moment we met. Maura, a close friend who grew up with Lindsay, recalled her echoing personality. She always had the most appropriate jokes <clears throat> at the most, at the just the appropriate inappropriate moment. <laughs> she said. But Paul, who dated Lindsay during the fall semester and worked with her at Cafe Gelato, said her laugh accompanied her charismatic personality. She had a very unique laugh, he, he said. She kind of tilted her head back. It was very honest. On a personal note, I did not know Lindsay personally, but when my son was not even a year old, I would attend nursing mother's meetings on Main Street near the University of Delaware. Lindsay worked at Cafe Gelato, an upscale Italian restaurant on Main Street in Newark, right across from where my son and I attended the nursing mother's meetings once a week. And my son loved trying the gelato ice cream there. And when we would get, we, and we would get a small cup and share it. When Lindsay was working there, I remember her particularly because she loved my son, who was about nine months old at the time, and would leave her counter to feed him samples. He would have a huge grin on his face when he would see her. 
when we came in. She had such a she was such a sweetheart and loved children. She was so great with my son. She would have been amazing mommy. At first, when I saw it in the paper, it did not register because I could not remember her name and Lindsay's hair was blonde in many of the pictures. And she had it darker at the time when we would come into the restaurant. It was not till I saw where she worked at Cafe Gelato and the photos of her with darker hair that I figured out who it was. I was absolutely heartbroken. And for years, I could not even go to Cafe Gelato. I eventually got hold of her father, Mark, in late 2005 and shared the story with him. He was very appreciative and it gave him comfort. I was initially not sure if I should call, but I'm glad that I did because it comforted him greatly. Lindsay's sense of humor shared for her writing, her roommate said, especially in the book she was planning to write about her large, close-knit Irish Catholic family. She was going to write about specific stories from family functions and kind of make fun of her family in a good way, she said. Lindsay had started writing the first chapter and read parts to her roommate. Kathleen Bonnestel, Lindsay's mother, said during her years at Good Council Academy High School, Lindsay occupied her time as a senior class president, captain of the soccer and track teams, members of two cheerleading squads, Universal Cheerleading Association instructor, a competitive diver and volunteer, among other activities. Anything she decided she wanted to do, she did, and she put her whole heart and soul into it and did it well, her mom said. Lindsay made the cheerleading squad and the dive team her freshman year at the University of Delaware, but decided against pursuing these activities. Mark, her father, said Lindsay gained a new perspective in life between high school and college. She got a new approach in life, he said. Instead of busying herself with too many activities, Lindsay wanted to figure out her niche. Despite having a guaranteed transfer to Cornell University for her sophomore year, Lindsay decided to stay in Newark because she grew accustomed to her friends and lifestyles. Originally a biology major with aspirations to become a doctor, Lindsay realized her interest in writing and turned to English journalism. She flip-flopped her major and was full steam ahead with journalism, her father said. It really lit her up, really lit up her lamp when she got published in the Review, a longtime University of Delaware news source. A journalism journalism professor at U of, Del, of U of D said he enjoyed teaching Lindsay because of her curiosity. She struck me as somebody who was not afraid to say she didn't know something. There was no pretension about her. She was pretending to be a super reporter. She wanted to learn what she could. Her mother recalled Lindsay's many accomplishments and noted her her last as covering the Philadelphia Flowers Show, which was published on the front page of the Reviews Mosaic section. She was so proud of that, her mother said. Friends noted Lindsay's close relationship with her, with her father, Mark. Lindsay spoke of her father all the time, which was rare for a college student. They were like best friends. She loved her family. She had so many pictures of them on her wall. 
The last time her father saw Lindsay was April 11th, when Lindsay made him stop on the way back to New York to show him her published clips that she was saving. Unfortunately and sadly, all of that was lost in the fire, said Mark Bonestell, Lindsay's father. The only belongings her, hers we, we could salvage from her apartment were quite a, were, were a few articles of smoke-damaged clothing. I was hoping to find something that might have been concealed from the damage that would have some connection to her, he said. He also recovered pieces of Lindsay's jewelry along with some of her classmates found in the car. Found in her car. We trade in everything to have Lindsay back, her father said. But just having little pieces of her is important to us. Friends noticed as Lindsay's natural blonde hair darkened as the year progressed. Despite some protests from parents, Lindsay dyed her long, curly blonde hair and sweeping gangs to a deep brown that contrasted with her bright blue eyes. Lindsay's, Lindsay, Lindsay's dark hair had to do with her finally coming into her own, said her roommate. She was more into doing things she wanted to do in college. That's why she was doing journalism. She figured out the kind of person she wanted to be. Lindsay dove into her interest in music as well the year she passed. Friends recalled her learning to play the guitar and showing off new songs she could play when she visited. Wish She Were Here by Pink Floyd was one song she had mastered, and she was learning Blackbird by the Beatles. The Mars Vitola, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Incubus were among her favorite bands. Lindsay's funky style was in her funky personality. In olive green polka dot sequence shoes, numerous bracelets, and dangly earrings were accessories Lindsay would often be seen in. She was gorgeous, her roommate said. She could wear sweatpants and a white t-shirt with a trucker hat and still look adorable. Lindsay was constantly around her friends and was especially fascinated with her own art projects. In 2005, the Bonestals, I'm sorry, the Bonestals in 2005 received countless flowers, letters, and support from people who were touched by Lindsay. At the wake, a slideshow made by one of her cousins featured an array of pictures and home videos taken of Lindsay. Songs from some of her favorite bands, such as Keen, Pink Floyd, John Lennon, and Enya played in the background. A prayer, which was given to everyone in attendance, expressed her feelings perfectly. Breathe not nor speak of me with tears, but laugh and talk of me as, as though I were beside you and that I loved you so. Friends said the funeral gave the situation a sense of reality, and it was the first step in a difficult path to closure. Sometimes it still feels like she's coming back, her roommate said, like she's just on vacation. The anger that comes with the grief is still inevitably persistent by her family and friends, but it's something that has surpassed with time. The University of Delaware established a $50,000 fund in Lindsay's memory towards a scholarship for students. 
Her father said he was honored by the university scholarship and has worked with his wife, Kathleen, Lindsay's mom and daughter, Lindsay's sister, Kristen, on other projects as, as a foundation to help victims of violent crimes. It's a great honor and a valuable tri tribute to Lindsay and her memory, Mark said. Mark, Kathleen, and Kristen have made sure Lindsay's legacy continued in the last 16 years since her passing. They have started an organization that Skyrocket called Peace Outside Campus. I phrase that Lindsay spoke a lot. Peace out, she'd say. This focuses on the safety of college students off campus through the country and on college campuses. It has been 100% successful and has helped many students stay safe, as well as helped many parents to avoid the nightmare the Bonnestals went through in 2005. The family has taken their pain and have outsourced it to help others. This way, Lindsay would have won. This is the way Lindsay would have wanted it. Lindsay's families and friends say that Lindsay's memory will never be lost because her personality was unforgettable. Her mother said Lindsay's energy was motivational. In her short little lifetime, she accomplished so much, she said. She was my strength, my inspiration. I called her my Lindsay Lou. We will now take a short break. We're back. Thank you for your patience. Now some info on Lindsay's killer, James P. Cook. James P. Cook was living with a woman who had four children with and was, uh, and was also nine months pregnant with another one of his children. They lived in Lincoln Drive in a modest apartment that was just a stone throws away from Lindsay's off-campus town court apartment where the killing of Lindsay Bonnestal occurred. Cook's apartment's backyard faced the front of Bonnestal's parking lot, an apartment building. Cook had an excellent view of Bonnestal's comings and goings. Police believe he had been stalking her before the murder, before she was even murdered, in which Bonnestal had absolutely no knowledge of and had no idea or clue. Bonnestal was selected at random for the brutal crime. Lindsay had absolutely no relationships with James E. Cook, Jr. Although Cook lived just one block away, Cook broke into Lindsay's apartment in the early morning hours of Sunday, May 1st, 2005. He probably surprised her while she was sleeping. He raped Lindsay and then strangled her to death. According to police reports, Lindsay was already dead when Cook dragged her to the bathroom, and dumped her in the bathtub. Since Lindsay was buried under many objects and debris, police surmised that Cook wanted to make sure that her body was completely burned up so as to destroy any evidence, and so he piled flammable material on top of her body before he set on fire. Cook failed on this point, and it's his DNA, which was found on Lindsay's body, which was the most damning evidence against him. <clears throat> Mark Bonestell, Lindsay's father, was not satisfied with the security of Lindsay's apartment building, and with good reason. <clears throat> 
There was no lock on the front door, and her balcony was only a few feet above the ground level. All fathers should advise their daughters never to rent an apartment on the ground floor, and also never to rent in a building that does not have a lock on the front door and adequate lighting around the entrance. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to have your young daughter who you have tenderly and lovingly raised from the time she was a small infant suddenly taken away from you? It is heart-wrenching enough when this happens as a result of an accident, but when she is brutally raped and murdered and set on fire under a pile of trash in her apartment, what could be more horrible? Mr. Bonestell and his wife and their whole family had to sit through the trial for this heartless killer. As his court-appointed attorney tried to suppress evidence, Cook 36 was supposedly abused and neglected through an impoverished childhood in nearby Sam Hall, New Jersey, even getting his feet scolded by his mother's boyfriend at the toddler, an injury that still affected the way he walked. He grew up to be an aggressive teenager, a drug dealer, and a thief, although never to the violent level that he reached during the murder of Lindsay. He lived around the corner from the Bonestell, from the Bonestell apartment with his girlfriend and four of his ten, ten children. The killing was the culmination of a break-in spree of escalating violence that week. The night before, he threatened to kill a woman but fled her apartment when she screamed her roommate's name and dialed 911 on her cell. Early on May 1st, he broke into Bonnell's apartment through a sliding glass door. He gagged her, raped her, and strangled her with a t-shirt. He then put her body in the bathtub and set it on fire and scrawled messages on the wall to confuse police into thinking the crime was committed by white supremacists. Here's a timeline of his crimes. April 27, 2005. James Cook Jr. breaks into Cheryl Harmon's apartment at 11th or Lane in Newark, Delaware, across an alley from his home and steals two rings with her name on them. April 30, April 30th, 2005. 1 a.m. Cook Cook confronts Amaya Carada in her West, Plate Place, I'm sorry, West Park Place house and threatens to kill her if she doesn't turn over money and credit cards. He demands that she takes, take her clothes off but flees when she yells, Christina, Christina, her roommate's name. May 1st, 1.15 a.m. Lindsay Bonestell returns to her apartment at 81 Thorn Lane. 2.45 a.m. Firefighters respond to reports of smoke at Bonestell's apartment and extinguish the fire. They leave, uh, extinguish a fire. They leave to battle another fire a few blocks away. 12.30 p.m. Fire officials and a New York detective return to Bonestell's apartment and find her body under charred debris in the bathtub. She had been gagged, raped, and strangled. May 2nd, Cook disguises his voice on, on a 911 call to the New York police in which he claims the killing claims the killing and the harm and burglary were the work of white supremacists of a white supremacist drug gang. 
He uses Harmon's name and the name of Kuradra's roommate, which had been pu made public, helping police link, which I'm sorry, which had not been made public, helping police link Cook to the three crimes. <clears throat> Late May, Cook's bosses at a shoe store at the University Plaza Shopping Center in Newark tells police they recognize Cook in a poster showing a surveillance photo from an ATM where he used Bonnestell's ATM card. June 6, Cook is arrested in Wilmington, Delaware on charges in the second break-in. He is charged that week in Bonnestell's killing with results of DNA testing with, uh, with the odds of 1 in 67-6 quintillion that it was someone else linked to the rape. Cook's trial begins. On Jan 27, 2007, March 8, Cook is convicted of the first-degree murder after jury after the jury rejects the lawyer's contention he was guiltily, guilty but mentally ill. March 21, 2007, the jury recommends the death penalty for Cook. June 6, 2007. Superior Court Judge Justice Jerome Hurley finds that aggravating factors outweigh the mitigation and sentences Cook to death by lethal injection. His words. Strangling violence still requires a desire to, killing, to kill lasting much longer than pulling a trigger one or two times. Hurley said it is particularly up close and personal. The use of her t-shirt and pressing on her chest betrays a cold-blooded viciousness. It was a slow, painful, terrifying death. Cook spent most of the trial in a holding cell after several, several outbursts in which she complained the judge was unfair. The prosecutors and police were framing him and lawyers were pursuing a mental illness defense he didn't want. On one occasion, he had to be wrestled to the floor by the bailiffs. Cook insisted he had consensual, consensual sex with Bonnestell and did not kill her, which was 100% not true. The jury rejected his claims and convicted, convicted him of first-degree murder. Cook's public defenders, Brendan O'Neill and Kevin O'Connor, had conceded his guilt had conceded his, ceded, I'm sorry, his guilt during the trial, they focused on his troubled childhood and attempt to secure the life imprisonment. To, I'm sorry, to unsecure life imprisonment. They said they were disappointed by the judge's decision, but not surprised, considering the jury's unanimous recommendation, and they, they will begin their appeal immediately. He's more than just the worst thing he ever did. He's a human being, O'Connell said. We lost this battle, but there's still more to do, more to be done. O'Neill said their client was stunned. He understood this day was coming, and while he, could, while he could expect this decision from the judge, it's difficult to appreciate it fully until it's announced publicly. Five of the juries and one of the alternatives also attended the sentencing and welcomed the chance to speak with the Bonnestell family when it was over. In court, Cook claimed his attorneys 
were working with the judge to railroad him, and he was finally banished from the courtroom by Judge Jerome Hurley. After frequent outbursts, the jury deliberated just over two days before finding him guilty of murder, felony murder, rape, robbery, three counts of burglary, arson, reckless endangering, and two counts of misdemeanor theft. Prosecutors used DNA evidence to link Cook to the killing. During the opening statement, prosecutors Steve Wood, prosecutor Steve Wood, also played experts from a 911 tape in which he said Cook talked to a dispatcher about two burglaries at nearby residences just days before Bonnetsville's killing and provided details about the killing which the caller suggested was part of the drug war involving white supremacists. Among other things, the voice on the tape referred to KKK and white power, graffiti found in Bonnetsville's apartment. This was peculiar, peculiar, I'm sorry, since James Cook was a black man. A handwriting analyst testified that the rating was consistent with samples of Cook's rating. We were never big components of the death penalty, said Kathy and Mark Bonnestell. But when you have a child murdered so violently, so horrifically, any lesser sentence would not have served justice. Neither would refer to Cook by name calling him the individual or defendant. Lindsay's uncle, John Bonestell, said the entire family refrains from uttering his name. It's almost considered a curse word in our family. Prosecutors hailed the death sentence as appropriate, but said it was not something they feel good about because it resulted from a tragedy. There was a striking contrast between the promise and goodness of Lindsay Bonestell and the menacing evil that James that is James Cook, said Deputy Attorney Gener- General Steve Stephen Wood. And the contrast was, I think, for all of us, a source of very powerful emotions. Attorneys re- representing convicted killer James Cook Jr. had filed papers with the U.S. Supreme Court in 2014 se- seeking to overturn his conviction, and his death sentence, and also filed papers in the state court seeking to stop his scheduled December 4th execution. Cook was convicted and sentenced to death twice for the May 2005 rape and murder of the University of Delaware sophomore Lindsay Bonnestor. The first conviction, however, was overturned by divided Supreme Court. The court upheld Cook's second conviction, but in the papers filed with the U.S. Supreme Court, attorneys with the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation in Philadelphia argued a state judge should not have given Cook more time should have given Cook more time to prepare for trial after he fired his court-appointed attorneys and chose to represent himself. Attorney Mark Bookman also wrote Cook needed Cook. I'm sorry, Cook. Cook needed the time, sorry about that, because 11 days before trial, he learned of the new evidence about 
a prosecution witness who had lied at the first trial related to a prior suspect. However, according to Deputy Attorney General Stephen Wood, the evidence cited by Bookman was not new and was not central to the case. The man involved was never a suspect in a killing. The evidence related to a man who had the same cell phone number as a deactivated as a deactivated cell phone that was used to call police about the crime days after the murder. Wood said the voice in the phone call was positively identified as belonging to Cook. Cook had a history of feuding and firing his attorneys, including dismissing the attorneys who successfully overturned his first conviction and death sentence. When he fired attorneys Anthony Figliola and Peter Reith, his third set of his third set of attorneys, in November 2012, about three months before the trial, he was warned he would get no additional legal help and that the trial would not be postponed. At the trial, several days of misbehavior in court, Superior Court Judge H. Charles, I'm sorry, Superior Court Judge Charles H. Tolliver V ruled that Cook had forfeited his right to represent himself and reinstalled Figola and Reese as Cook's attorneys. Figola and Reese, meanwhile, filed a motion late Wednesday to stay Cook's execution current to unstay Cook's execution currently set on December 4th, citing Cook's appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Delaware prosecutors expected court to Cook to file a fair appeal and a seek of stay of his execution. In 2008, thankfully, Delaware Supreme Court Court had rejected an appeal from a former death row inmate convicted of raping and killing a University of Delaware student. The ruling involves in the latest in the series of appeals by James E. Cook. Cook was initially sentenced to death for the 2000 murder of 20-year-old Lindsay Bonestell of White Plains, New York. He was resentenced to life without parole after the state Supreme Court declared the death declared Delaware's death penalty law unconstitutional in 2016. Cook then challenged his life sentence, saying his constitutional rights were violated because the judge did not consider a specific number of years in prison. He also argued that a mandatory life sentence without parole for first-degree murder is unconstitutional. The The court rejected Cook's argument as being without merit or any legal support. The Bonestell families and Jesus. A judge has set the execution date for a man convicted of raping and murdering a University of Delaware student. James E. Cook Jr. is set to be put to death on December 4th for killing Lindsay Bonestall in her off-campus apartment in 2005. Cook then tried to hide his crime by setting the apartment on fire. Cook's attorney expects him to file an appeal and claim his counsel was ineffective and get a stay of execution. For more on the... Sorry about that, folks. I had a technical difficulty. The Bonestell family and friends went through the constant pain and grief emotionally, mentally, and physically. Having to relive Lindsay's 
horrific deaths over and over. But rest assured, they took their grief and pain and used it to start an organization called Peace Outside Campus, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the memory of Lindsay Bonestell. Like I said earlier, one of Lindsay's most used phrases was, peace out. Their mission is to promote peaceful and safe living environments in college communities. Their goal is to empower students and their families to be proactive in safeguarding themselves against crime. To mirror Lindsay's peaceful spirit, our goal is not, not to create a culture of fear, but rather build a sense of empowerment, strength, and security. Considering the U.S. population of women, approximately one in five women will experience rape. This is a number much higher for some, such as indigenous women. Because of the large number because of the large number of women who experience rape in the U.S., there are more women with rape-related post-traumatic stress order in the United States than there are veterans with war-related post-traumatic stress disorder. That's the bad news. But the good news is that with hard work and good science, we can prevent many of these cases of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PS, PTSD, and other rape-related problems. Good, comprehensive self-defense can reduce the risk of rape, yet indigenous women have rarely been included in studies of self-defense. We also know that the culture and tradition promote health for indigenous people. Connecting to the traditions and ancestors of the past is important. When your traditional, traditional lands have been forcibly taken, Thus, this project seeks to explore how to incorporate indigenous culture and traditions into self-defense programs to reduce the risk of rape for indigenous women. Our, our team includes multiple indigenous people, and our first step will be meeting with the indigenous students on campus, campus to hear how they think we can help prevent rape. Their motto is empower, be proactive, and get involved. It features safety tips for living off campus, personal space, personal safety tips, off-campus housing safety when looking for a place to live, and off-campus housing safety, safety in your apartment. They also have supportive programs like Teens in Transition, a program for high school students who are about to experience one of the most significant transitions in our life, college. A peer-led program, TNT, gives students the tools they need to be proactive in safeguarding themselves. Participate, participants need hear personal accounts from program leaders and learn how to identify high-risk situations, learn steps they can take to avoid becoming the victim of a violent crime. And of course, they can take, they can take to avoid becoming the victim of a violent crime. And of course, tributes to their beautiful angel in heaven, Lindsay, whose life was cut too short by a devil lurking that she had no knowledge of. Please check out their website and Facebook page. Out, um, it's it's www.peaceoutsidecampus.org. That's www.peaceoutsidecampus.org, or even their Facebook page, which is www facebook.com 
slash Peace Outside Campus. That's www.facebook.com Peace Outside Campus. Okay. Lindsay's parents, Mark and Kathy, are doing well. Their daughter, Kristen, is married and has three young children. Mark and Kathy have spent three... I mean, Mark and Kathy have three grandchildren, so they're doing a lot of babysitting, as well as spending lots of time with the grandkids. Christian and a son in the, their grandkids, I'm sorry, spending lots of time with their grandkids, Christian and a son-in-law they adore and love like their own son. They have a close-knit, close-knit extended family and friends. So, um, a few final words of, of my own. Um, our country court system is completely broken and so flawed, especially when a victim like Lindsay has less rights than her killer. And that public defender, defenders and defense, attor- defense attorneys and even judges are allowed to demonize the victim with dishonesty, especially in a crime this brutal. Being a victim of sexual assault myself, these details in Lindsay's case make many women and men fearful to come forward or report their assaults. Things must change. Our politicians only give us empty promises, but never, but things never change, and they have even gotten worse. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please call the National Sexual Assault Hotline which is uh, open 24 hours a day, and the number is 1-800-656-4673. That's 1-800-656-4673, or you can log on to www.rain.org. So that's W-W-R-A-I-N-N, two N's, dot org. That's www.rainrain.org. I would include these numbers and websites on my Facebook page, which is www.facebook.com slash Delaware Crime 21. That's www.facebook.com slash Delaware Crime 20, and it's spelled D E A. I'm sorry, D-E-L-A-W-E-R, I'm sorry, D-E-L-A-W-H-E-R-E, that's www.facebook.com slash Delaware, and that's D-E-L-A-W-H-E-R-E, Crime 21. And you can also... um, leave uh, on my website. You can also leave suggestions and, um, you know, uh, comments, uh, you know, for what I need to do better. I said this last week, I need, you know, as many as I can get. I won't take them the wrong way. You know, just be kind, but don't um, give me suggestions if you think I'm doing, you know, if you think I need to do a better job or what. Okay. So Lindsay had so many talents and love. One was poetry. This is the last line line of a poem she wrote. I want to show the world my wings. To show them I can fly. 
and one day soon they will see me many miles high in the sky. Very, very, just my, just makes me tear up. Tune in next Monday, April 26th to Delaware Crime for my fourth podcast that Charles Cohen, the bedroom killer. And uh, that's a case that was back in the late 80s where a man um, killed his father in his bedroom um, with a, I think it was a, one of those um, dumbbells that you work out with. Thank you for listening. Hoping you have a wonderful, safe, and blessed week. Delaware Crime is a Pod Francis production. How do you like it, Francis? Okay, Mom.